I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caperell, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. In this episode, Scott reports back from the Windy City on USMCA, and he'll tell us what more needs to be done to push the deal across the finish line. And U.S.-China negotiations are slated to start back up again. What does the U.S. hope to gain from a proposed meeting next week in Shanghai? Plus, the European Commission's Director General of Trade discussed the future of U.S.-EU trade at CSIS earlier this week. The EU stands for a market of 500 million people, and we want to leverage the size and the importance of this market in order to shape the global environment in a way that is conducive to fair trading practices. You'll hear about all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. So Scott just got back from Chicago at a meeting of the Council of State Legislature's Midwestern Legislative Conference. Did I get that right? Yeah. And there... USMCA came up. There were some Canadians apparently at this meeting. So what was that all about? Well, first, I was very grateful for the invitation. As a Midwesterner, I always like getting back. It's like going home. Plus to Chicago, Chicago, the cultural center of the nation, which is Main Street of Mid-America. Just a great, great city. And it's a wonderful place to travel to. I adored going to Chicago when uh, when I lived in Ohio. We'd We'd travel there reasonably frequently. My daughter went to school near Chicago, so we went back quite frequently when she was there. And so it's, it's always great to get back. But it's it, I think it's great to get out of the Acela Corridor and talk to people. And in this particular case, what I was struck by was, uh, first, state legislators. So this, these are state representative state senators, uh, elected officials who attend the meetings. These are a very hardworking group, uh, very dedicated, very close to their constituents. But what struck me is the politics of trade are very different. Uh, for state government government officials versus the federal officials. Now, basically, all the policy decisions are made at the federal level, as we know, for trade policy. Um, but the politics of trade is much more about, basically, what are my constituents looking for economically? You know, it's sort of an economic development question. How do I help them get ahead? How do I help them get what they want out of these agreements? It's very practical, and it's rooted in collaboration, which I thought, which I found really refreshing. And so what I found was a group of people who, first of all, very curious. They had they had detailed knowledge from the constituents they had spoken to about what the issues were and what was going on. They had lots and lots of questions. But their aim was always cooperation. Okay, so the, the, these committees had formed, and it, it was there was one of the subcommittees which indeed had officials from the Canadian government, provincial governments, and the government of Canada, as well as uh, state U.S. state officials from the Great Lakes region, and they've worked together for years. They've solved a lot of problems. They have problems of invasive species in the Great Lakes. Uh, back 20, 30 years ago, there's a problem of acid rain that that all these uh, these uh, states work together on, and thanks to our common clause, uh, states have learned how to cooperate because there are always issues. I mean, Indiana has issues with Illinois and and uh, and bo- other bordering states, and so that, that comes up all the time. This seems to be one of the four that they use to solve it. So I found the attitudes quite refreshing. People were open-minded about it, and uh, more importantly, they really get what NAFTA and USMCA are about. They, they don't think of them as trade agreements. This is a set of rules that helps us work together with our neighbors whether it's our neighbors in the next state or our neighbors in Canada 
whatever it is, so, which is exactly how NAFTA functions is why we make things together and sell them to each other and the rest of the world. Um, so they, they kind of got it, had a, had a strong commitment uh, to collaborate. But they, you know, they had a four-day meeting, and they spent uh, basically a half day on trade and NAFTA and wow. USMCA. So I, I was part of a panel uh, the, in a large plenary session, and then there was a working group with uh, Dan Uzico of uh, Dixon Wright, who is one of the most sophisticated uh, guys when it comes to auto rules of origin, a real, a true expert on that subject. They spent an hour and a half with Dan, you know, basically doing a deep dive into into automotive rules. And so they were they were really hungry and curious for knowledge. But clearly, USMCA is a big deal. I also found out that our Buy America, uh, the new Buy America executive order has irritated a lot of people from Canada. Just wanted to, <laughs> we might want to cover that at some future point. Did it irritate the Americans too? Well, they, the Americans were mostly scratching their heads, but the, the, most of the irritation comes from how it's very unclear how this gets interpreted. So we can save that for another topic. But that that's the issue I didn't expect to come up and was, was, uh, was somewhat uh, uh, obvious once I got there. Well, it comes up a lot with Canadians in multiple contexts because they really I think, see the see an integrated market. Yes. And, it, of course, it's in their interest to see an integrated market because a larger part of the market is here. And wanting to maintain an open border and open procurement opportunities is a bigger deal for them, I think, than procurement opportunities in Canada is for us. But uh, it's a reminder that – and I just had a conversation with somebody in the Hill about this this morning. It's a reminder that that despite what the president has said from time to time, NAFTA really worked. Yes. And it worked in the way that you were talking about. It created an integrated North American economy. And one of the interesting things about the current debate is the absence of people saying what a lot of them said for the last 20 years, which is how horrible NAFTA is and how we need to get out of it. And you don't find people saying that anymore because I think the public – uh, and therefore the constituents, voters, uh, have by and large uh, come to terms with it, accepted it, and recognized the benefits that you just described. It really does set up a framework. Absolutely. Well, in the group that I was with, mostly sort of Midwesterners who border Canada, uh, they did never saw Canadians as the enemy. Canadians are the partners. And so that, that's part of what helped the collaboration. So, but I think you're right that this is, is really a set of, set of rules for how we work together, and they're anxious to get on with it. Yeah, it's an entirely different perspective than, you know, a lot of the debate that ha that's happening here over USMCA. And certainly it's a lot different than the rhetoric that the administration was using when they were negotiating USMCA, right, where we were kind of badgering Canada about all these trade irritants. We had the steel and aluminum tariffs. The whole negotiation was set up as a what can we do to make sure America wins and well, we it get was, a better deal. It was the worst trade agreement since the earth cooled. So right. something had to be done. Right. right. And it's interesting because that perspective of how do we make an agreement that works for everybody versus how do we make an agreement that works for me and works less well for you, essentially, that attitude was carried forward, I think, by Canadian officials throughout the negotiations, but kind of outside of Washington, right? I remember speaking to some folks at the embassy a few years ago when you know, they were negotiating USMCA and they said they have a, a they had a huge campaign outside of Washington at the state level to drum up support, kind of like an outside in strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it's a little bit reflective of now what the administration is doing to try and sell the deal. Right. You have the vice president traveling across the country, giving stump speeches for USMCA. He's in Iowa today and they're really trying to build up support. So, you know, are they onto something there? Do you think that 
that's going to be an effective strategy now that they're employing it? Well, I think it's still on track, and I'm still optimistic. Uh, as you get closer to the end, uh, you get more worried because things kind of loom. And one of the rules of the Hill is that, uh, you know, when there's a train leaving the station, more and more people try to throw their luggage on board. And so you find new issues coming up uh, late in the day and, and new demands as people try to squeeze more and more into what they think is going to be a, a successful vehicle. I mean, the good news, as I said, is that you don't have the baked-in hardcore opposition that you usually have from Democrats on trade agreements. You still have most of them wanting to try to get to yes. There will always be a contingent that will never find an agreement they can vote for. We are going through a period where there's a growing amount of finger pointing from each side um, at the other. And a lot of it at this point is um, process finger pointing, which is uh, who is slow rolling the thing. Sure. Uh, the Democrats seem to believe the administration is not responding to their concerns, is not coming up with anything. The administration seems to believe that uh, the House Democrats have not been specific enough to tell them what it is that they're supposed to do. And so there's this tension there that encourages people to come up with more. Sure. Um, I don't have any reports on the, the delegation that went to uh, Mexico over the weekend. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have a sense of where that has come back from. Well, we've mentioned there is a working group, and it sounds like they're working, which is, which is unusual for congressional working groups. Well, <laughs> yeah, they're working, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens after, after this week because the, the, House re, the House begins its recess after the end of the, at the end of this week, which means the members will scatter, uh, which means it will be at the staff level for a month. And right, so we give, we've basically ran out of legislative days to do anything before August. People come back yes. after Labor Day, so it's a fairly long break. Uh, the, there's no election that forces an early adjournment, so they're here for a while. But what happens when they come yeah, back? Yeah, there's, there's plenty of time. I think the one question will be whether the staff can actually put things together uh, during, the, during August to you know, get to a point where they can actually have a negotiation. What's, what's been going on now is that the Democrats come in and say, we have this problem, we have this problem, we have this problem. And Ambassador Lighthizer says, I have fixes for this, I have fixes for this, I have fixes for this. And, but nobody has put enough on the table to sort of test the hypotheses. The Democrats have not, as near as I can tell, put their problems into, into demands. Right. This, is, this is what we need to see in the bill. And uh, Lighthizer has not come forward with his fixes. Sure. Uh, and so people are beginning to get a little bit nervous about how long this is taking. And it then leads to, I think, the Democrats saying, well, we can't entirely address this in the bill because the flaws are in the agreement, uh, which is a little worrisome um, because I don't think that's necessarily so. What, I mean, my advice to the Democrats has been don't start with where the problem is. Start with what the problem is. Right. And, and then figure out identify how to, it as how to deal with it. Identify as as you can and then yeah. identify what, what might be the solution and work that way. Yeah, and I'm worried. Uh, I, I mean, I, th I still see a happy ending for all the reasons I've said before, so I won't repeat that rant. But I do get a little bit worried that uh, we're going to see some, some escalation here on the, part of the, on the part of the Democrats that is demanding more and more. Um, and I, I'm also worried that on the Republican side, 
uh, we're going to see, you know, some reluctance to come forward with, uh, with actual remedies. And as you know, you know, one of the problems the Republican side has had, and it's the reverse of the same problem that Obama had to deal with, which is this deep-seated view that the other party is never going to give them anything. And there are a number of people in the White House who just think the House Democrats will never give Trump a victory, so what we ought to do is try to force it through. I mean, the flaw in that is that they can't procedurally. Yeah, we've, been, we've seen that movie before. It, yes. ran, it, was, it ran to, to, to cheers in 2008. Yes. And I mean, it the, it, the it speak, didn't work out for the administration. <laughs> the speaker has more cards yes. on that particular play. But there's people that want to do that anyway. And, of course, and that, kind of, that kind of poisons the well. If you believe that they'll never do anything you want, you don't really have an incentive to compromise right. or to step forward. And if the Democrats, the Democrats begin to believe, well, you know, they're never going to accommodate our concerns. And, you know, we're getting to a point where this is going to be, there's going to be a crunch here. And I think I still have light confidence in Lighthizer and yeah, the he House seems, leadership for being wanting to fix this. Yes, it, it looks like Chairman Neal is in the right place in terms of his seriousness. Also, Ambassador Lighthizer has been a totally honest broker from everything I've heard and said about yes. this conversation. So I think that's right. There's just people, uh, other people on both sides pulling them apart Got rather it. than together. So it seems fairly clear what cards each side could be holding, right? So the Democrats have four concerns, environmental provisions, labor provisions, drug IP and drug prices, and enforcement. And it seems like the issue is no one, neither the Democrats nor Lighthizer and the White House essentially have come forward with a concrete solution that would satisfy the other side, right? And we are getting to crunch time, as Bill said. You know, there are no legislative days in August, and then you get back and you have essentially two and a half months until you're into 2020, and then the election cycle spins into gear. Yeah, but the end game is short. Once it comes up uh, formally, it doesn't take very long to pass it. Yeah. So the critical phase is, is now. Right. And, and it looks to me like I, I have not yet talked to a Democratic member or, or Democratic staff that thinks this is a good issue for 2020. Most most of the ones who have actually been through this before would like to get it over with. They've made peace with 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 trade with Canada and Mexico. Uh, it, the, the agreement is what it is. If it, they can improve it, that's great. But but dragging this out and, and and using it as a campaign issue doesn't seem to serve anybody's interests. There are Democrats who are nervous um, for the same reason I've been nervous, which is the, that, you know, the president can always decide that he'd rather have a campaign issue than a victory. Yes. Uh, I think it's in his political interest to have a victory because he doesn't have very many so far on trade. But, um, you know, I don't get to make that calculation. He does. And if he thinks that there is political gain in having this thing fall apart and then blaming the Democrats for it falling apart— I can see him going down that road. It's not the right road for the country. I also think it's not the right road for him politically. But yeah, we'll he see. seems to be working for a win right at the moment. So let's so we'll, far we'll, we'll watch this space. Okay, one space where he also is working towards a win, maybe although it's maybe probably less likely to get one is on China. There's likely to be another round of negotiations in China next week. The U.S. will send Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. It'll be the first uh, round of negotiations at that level since the talks broke down. And then there is a more fundamental story, which is some of the economic data now coming out of Asia, 
specifically out of Singapore, which shows huge slowdown in their GDP, huge contraction in exports from Singapore, which usually signals that the region as a whole is slowing, large drop in chemical exports to China, which bodes poorly for China's uh, manufacturing numbers. And and so, you know, there's the day-to-day what's happening with the, with the trade war at the negotiating level, and there's a fundamental issue of the Asia slowdown. I mean, do you think that that creates any urgency? Do you think that the dynamics at all in the negotiations have changed? I don't think the president cares about the Asia slowdown. I'm not sure it's as clear as as you're making it out. We had a, a conference here last week, last Wednesday, with people from the Asia Trade Center, which is in Singapore. And they commented on this. And you're right. I mean, the numbers you've got are, are correct. The question they raised, which they said it's really too soon to say, is, is this a, a one quarter or two quarter thing that mm-hmm. will come back? Or is it a, 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 a downward trend that will end up being significant? And, and at this point, I think they, they just don't know. Uh, there's a lot of disruption. Uh, and they reflected that um, a lot of but a lot of it is manifest in, in uncertainty and people waiting. And we've talked about this before. People are motivated to, if not get out of China, get their supply chains out of China. And it's not just the tariffs and the Americans. It's the Chinese slowdown that you alluded to. It's crackdowns going on inside of China that make people nervous. It's rising Chinese wage rates that make it a less profitable place to work than it used to be. So there's a lot of things combining. But then they think about where to go. This produced one of the, I thought, more amusing exchanges in our group. They think about, well, where are we going to go? It says, well, you know, Mexico. And, of course, then the president threatened Mexican tariffs. Then Vietnam. And then suddenly, you know, they were the second worst country in the world per uh, a Trump tweet. And then they were thinking, well, maybe India. And now that now we're attacking India, uh, that led me to the conclusion that maybe the only safe place for them to go is North Korea, because that seems to be the one country that is in good favor with the and president good right luck now. finding the ability to produce anything at scale in North Korea. I just I just wanted to point that out. That's I don't think that drives the American train in this right. negotiation. They're out for themselves, and uh, I also think they've painted themselves into a corner and are. Uh, trying to get out. On the day-to-day stuff, I'm just intrigued. I saw today, they're not going to Beijing. They're going to Shanghai. And I'm kind of curious why. Does that mean anything to you? I don't know. It was at the request of the Chinese. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of Maybe either. Maybe a change in the scenery. It means they can't take you know, a nonstop flight from Washington. <laughs> I can tell you that. that yeah, that's... Maybe that's all there is. Who knows? But look, yeah, Asia looks to be slowing down from all the macro numbers. The United States, the Main Street economy continues to roar on. So, uh, look, this is uh, we're going to have to watch and see. Trends have not yet developed in, in any of this. So it'll take a trend to put pressure on the talks. And then just, you know, one more comment on the nitty gritty. And then there's another another China story that we should cover, which is the Trump-Xi meeting, it seems as though, has only produced more confusion than clarity on any of the on at least two of the major issues, right? The status of, of Chinese purchase of U.S. agricultural products, and then what's going on with how the U.S. is treating Huawei. And you know, the administration had U.S. tech CEOs in yesterday for a meeting on Huawei that apparently the president stopped by, and it's you know they are obviously unhappy with with that situation because they want to export their products to to Huawei or allow their products to be used in Huawei equipment. But it's just not entirely clear to me. If anything has changed over the past six months, that would allow the negotiations 
to progress in well, look, any way. I don't. I think. I think both parties see it in their in their interest to let some time elapse. Look, certainly the Chinese want to just wait us out. I guess they are playing the long They'll game. They'll negotiate for ten years. It doesn't. Really, yeah, it doesn't really matter. They, they, they're not. They don't want to change, so they'll keep talking. And at this point, I, I think the president and his team would be reluctant to take any action which had a big had have a big downside of the domestic economy. I think that's why they backed away from the list four tariffs that uh, at, after the at the Osaka meetings. I think overall, the president would like to not stir things up and not disrupt the economy anymore uh, because he's he it looks to me like he wants to be reelected. So the I think thinking about that, it's it's unsurprising that nobody's willing to escalate or pressure the situation between the U.S. and China. Neither party sees that in their interest. And, you know, looking back on it, I realized it, it's not that unusual to have this happen when when leaders meet. I remember when I was on the Hill and we working for Senator Hines and we had a dispute with um, something. I don't know what it was, but it resulted in the senator and the secretary of the Treasury, who was Don Regan at the time, having a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And the two of them disappeared into his office and they met for about 45 minutes and they came out and announced that they had agreed. Big smiles all around. And big smiles all around. They had agreed. And then Regan left and went back to the Treasury Department and... Uh, both parties subsequently produced uh, a press release on what they had agreed to that were 180 degrees apart. Um, and there was no one else in the room uh, to so say, to nobody say could check. So, <laughs> you know, when leaders get together, you can't always assume that clarity is, is, going to assume, uh, is going to ensue. They say things that are designed to you know, accommodate the other without necessarily giving anything away. And there's a great opportunity for misunderstanding. And this is also what happened when the president met the met Jan Claude Juncker from the European Union about a year ago, right? Despite issuing a joint statement that said that agriculture would be <laughs> off the table when they entered into trade negotiations and that there would be no U.S. car tariffs, here we are a year later and there's still a disagreement about whether or not I, agriculture I should this. be in, included, right? Yesterday, Sabina Vajand, who is the the new Director General for Trade, the European Commission, and and Bill, you had the pleasure of having an armchair conversation with her on this topic and others. And where, where, what is, where does she say we were with, when it comes to the negotiations one year in? First of all, she was charming uh, and uh, not materially different from her predecessors as mm -hmm. far as her views were concerned, which is exactly what you would expect, but uh, a wonderful person to talk to. But she did, on, this, on the point you raised, she was exactly predictable. She reminded everybody that the Juncker-Trump uh, declaration did not con uh, include agriculture. And, and she also said something that I hadn't heard before, which was it was not because it wasn't discussed. She said it was, dis it was extensively discussed and the decision was made to leave it off the document. And uh, as far as I think, in, uh, she didn't put it this way, but it's pretty clear. I think their view is they won on that point, and they're not going to let go of it. And here we are a year later saying it is not there, and we're not going to negotiate with it. And she mentioned the same thing that, that her, her boss, Cecilia Malmstrom, has mentioned on several occasions, which is there's other stuff that's not in there either. You know, getting rid of the Jones Act is not in there. Government procurement is not in there. A whole bunch of things the EU wants that we don't want to give are not in there. And and Momstrom's point was, you want agriculture in, you've got to put this other stuff back in too. 
which is not likely to happen. So there is not yet a lot of give on the EU side on agriculture. I think what happened in the United States was the administration subsequently realized that they probably made a mistake on this. And uh, although I have to say in, in talking to them, they're, I think, as much motivated by politics as they are by substance. I mean, everybody loves the farmers, but the reality is, is you know, the 114 members of Congress that are sending them letters saying, we won't approve any agreement that doesn't have agriculture in it. Uh, and that has a lot more uh, to do with our, our current insistence, I think, than actually trying to address the problem. Well, but all that all that just tends to lead to stalemate because we yes. have we have the in the here we have the administration really unwilling to engage the Congress on negotiating objectives. So so we've got this muddle uh, for, for for what was agreed versus what Congress expects. All right. And uh, then when it comes to Europe, uh, I don't think any of the European officials, elected officials don't want to go talk to their voters about this. Because there's not, there doesn't seem to me to be a lot of appetite for a U.S. EU trade agreement. It 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 te- seems to push all the wrong buttons. So how do I don't know how to get off dead center here? Did she have any views on that? Well, she <laughs> uh, she had a plea, but it wasn't a helpful one. Uh, the plea was that we should be bigger than this. I mean, the, the the plea she gave to the public was the same plea that I gave to her and privately because we had a a small breakfast beforehand, which was there's a greater challenge out there. And and she alluded this specifically in the Boeing Airbus case, which came up, said, you know, we have there are other competitors in the world besides, you know, the two of us. And she was not talking about, uh, you know, Embraer and, and, you know, the Brazilians and Canadians. She was talking about the Chinese and that we ought to be getting together to solve this problem so that we can tackle the bigger problem with a united front. That's exactly the right message for the big picture. Yes, but it's the wrong message for our leader, who because well, what, what that sounds like is the kind of song and dance that every American president since 1947 has heard, and it really means United States just suck it up this time, take one for the team, we'll we'll be there with you, and uh, and uh, as Trump basically campaigned on the fact that our European allies rip us rip us off routinely, as he would say, whether it's NATO dues or uh, or uh, reciprocity in trade, and uh, he's he's the guy who intends to fix that. And what was clear, I think, in the discussion was, uh, and this is this is not a case where it's clear they'll be with us at the end of the day, in the sense that. Uh, they are still, uh, I mean, the uncharitable way to put it is they are still several years behind us in recognizing the, the nature of the China problem. I don't think they'd agree with that, but I think they would say that they approached it a different way. For them, it's an economic problem. It's not a security problem. I mean, if you think about it in, in the most elemental way, the missiles are pointed at L.A. and San Francisco. They're not pointed at Paris and Berlin. Uh, they don't see the threat in the same way that a lot of Americans see it as a security issue. It's an economic challenge for them, and they are beginning to see that the same way. But they believe deep in their souls, it sounds like, that the way to fix it is to stay firmly within the WTO box and use WTO rules and WTO procedures to tackle these problems. And, of course, the issue that keeps coming up that they don't have a good answer to is you've got Ambassador Lighthizer here saying the Chinese don't fit in the box. Right. They're too big and they're unique. The rules are not equipped to deal with them. We need to do something else. And it was clear in in what uh, Dr. Vian said yesterday, this Europe has not arrived at that point yet. Right. It seems like the Europeans just want to make the WTO box 
bigger. Essentially, they want to make new rules to fit China into the yes. box. And from the U.S. perspective, I mean, what's the point of making the box bigger if they're not going to respect the walls of the box to begin with, right? Yeah, this is the U.S. particularly. This this administration has a very different interpretation of the last twenty years of results at in Geneva. All right, that they basically that 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 expanding the box, this current box doesn't solve problems. Okay, it just you know you want to apply a set of rules that that basically, at least in the mind of our officials, haven't worked. Uh, so it doesn't sound like we're we're even at the right starting point yet. Right, and that doesn't help the Europeans either because they don't know how invested we are in in crafting new rules and whether they can count count on us. Well, Japan and the trilateral. Thing. Yes, I, to, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking about in that Go in ahead. that context. The one you know positive piece of news she brought was when it comes to the bilateral negotiations, there has been progress apparently made on regulatory cooperation and harmonizing standards. And, you know, maybe Scott, you can fill us in because you're, you probably used to deal with this a lot. I mean, what does that mean? What is the importance of that? Well, start with the point that there are there are sophisticated regulatory bodies uh, who determine product safety and efficacy in a number of countries. So take all the industrial democracies, or in this case, the United States, Japan, and Europe, all have competent authorities when it comes to qualifying products for the marketplace and determining their safety and efficacy. We have the Food and Drug Administration. Yes. Uh, we have the National Highway Safety Transportation Agency. Right. Uh, now, Highway Traffic Safety. Yes. So each at this point, each regulatory organization has been created by its its home country for domestic regulation. But they, because we're different people and we have sometimes have different problems, uh, the regulator, regulators often come to different con conclusions and often use different methods. This is the important part: use different methods to assess whether or not the product is safe and effective, whatever it might be. Sometimes the differences are quite legitimate. So when you operate high beams in the west of western of the United States, you're looking, you want to look a great distance out into the darkness if you're driving across Wyoming. If you're driving uh, the, the Italian Alps, your high beams don't really need to quite cover quite as much distance. So you can understand why standards often vary. At the same time, the, there is a lot of economic efficiency and uh, acceleration of innovation, which is available to the extent the regulators cooperate. And look, there's many, many products sold in United States, Europe, and Japan, which have a great record of not harming anyone at any time. And so each of the regulation, each of the regulatory bodies comes up with good decisions. The fact that they do it differently or through different processes complicates matters for manufacturers or marketers. And to the extent you could simplify that task where we accept each other's data, uh, when we, you, have, uh, you have a new drug or something like that, that you use the same dossier, the same, same set of data that, that was used in one market to qualify it for another, obviously, in, in the case of, of prescription drugs, that would get medicines to patients faster. So there's lots of, of benefits that, that spill out of this. But the real thing is we currently have competent regulators who have no incentives to work together. They've, they've developed domestic-only regulatory systems, and it can get complicated. So launching a new cosmetic product or shampoo product in, in Asia, 
You have uh, you have uh, uh, satellite TV, which covers all the households. You have regional customers who sell the product, get it in their stores, and move it ahead. You have uh, regional production systems, so you can get product ready to launch everywhere if you need it. And you have 18 to 20 different regulatory bodies, all of which have different timetables, different different uh, levels of of, uh, of uh, data required for the approval, different labeling requirements, things like that. So if you could if you could simplify that last step. A lot of manufacturers could go faster on a lot of products. It's weedy. Yeah. And one of the things that we've talked about before here is that if you're if you're President Trump, if you make an agreement, he wants to go back to Detroit or Cleveland or right. Des Moines and say, I got you more ag sales. I got you a deal on steel. I took care of the car problem. He doesn't want to go back to Detroit and say, boy, do we have good rules on conformity assessments. Uh, that's not an applause line for any politician well, I'm aware of. And one, a point that, that uh, Dr. Vian made, which um, I had not realized, was she thinks they've made a good bit of progress on conformity assessments in pharmaceuticals and a number of other sectors. And it really the, – the irony of it is it really is not about the um, – uh, changing the trade balance. It's about saving money because what, what they're doing is getting reaching agreement to basically recognize each other's procedures. Right. Uh, so you don't have to have testing here and in the EU. You can have one set of tests that both sides will recognize. You don't have to have different application forms for approval. You can have one form that both sides uh, can use. You have independent regulators making the judgment still. Yes. Uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to more transatlantic trade. What it does lead to is significant efficiencies in production. And so yes. co- companies on both sides can save a lot of money and become more competitive. And, and accelerate innovation in the marketplace yeah. and bring, bring consumers the benefits they're looking for. So I'll leave with this question. What, what are the chances you think that a U.S.-EU deal gets done in Trump's first term? Approaching zero. Really? Well, look, I actually think it's highly likely that there'll be something done with Japan. So I'm an optimist when it comes to U.S.-Japan yeah, trade. I agree. I'm, I'm still a pessimist with U.S.-EU trade uh, both, because we, are, we have same bed, different dreams. Okay, We want different things. We are looking at, the, at the, the trading relationship very differently. And we haven't yet found the area of common ground that, that everybody embraces. Well, and plus, you know, there are timing issues now. Uh, there's a new parliament in Europe. And there's going to be a new commission as of November 1st. And they just selected the new president, um, Ursula von der Leyen, the former, now former German defense minister. And she's going to be spending the next three months picking out commissioners, including the new trade commissioner. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of compli- – uh, this is an enormously complicated process because every country gets one. So there will be 27, um, assuming the EU actually leaves. So there will be 27 commissioners and dividing up the portfolios and making sure everybody is happy is uh, an enormously complicated problem. Uh, the country's got to nominate somebody. So it's not entirely her pick, although she can uh, apparently can, if she's adroit, uh, get rid of some of them. Juncker, I think, was able to get four or five of them to be withdrawn when, when he first came in. Um, but they're going to be preoccupied. And this is not a time to close a deal. You know, it's a time when everybody's looking out for themselves and their job. The commission comes in. And uh, Dr. Vaya had made the point that they don't need to have a new mandate. They don't need to start over. Um, mm-hmm. But it's going to take months before they're going to be ready 
I think, to seriously negotiate. So I would look at, uh, you know, winter, spring before anything serious happens. And that's awfully close to our election. Indeed. Put the EU on hold and then cross our fingers for Japan, which is another well, topic. Well, I mean, let's be honest. He's the, right about Japan. I yeah, think. I, think, I think Japan is more than crossing fingers. I think we, that can actually be delivered. But the EU, we, we started negotiations with them in 2010. Okay. We've gotten nowhere in a decade. Uh, it's really hard to you, you draw that graph, okay, and it's hard to project a sudden acceleration, sudden hockey stick toward uh, toward satisfactory results. And one of the issues there is the unpopularity of the United States and the unpopularity of a trade agreement with the United States uh, between the people that don't like the president, our president, and and don't want to have an agreement, and the people that that believe that European standards and regulations are superior to ours, and that therefore a trade agreement would be a giant regulatory downgrade for Europe that would lower their quality of life rather than improve it, that doesn't lead to a constituency trying to make this happen. Exactly. TTIP has been the one thing that unified the anti-U.S. crowd, the anti-Brussels crowd, and the anti-globalization crowd. So they all agree TTIP's bad. Okay, so good luck with that. That's the... It's tough, it's tough like politics. The one point in the middle of that Venn diagram. That, that's the deal. It's TTIP. At the same time, you've got the commission, Dr. Vyand, and also Commissioner Malmstrom, and I assume her successor, and people on the American side, actually probably not Ambassador Lighthizer, but other people, saying, you know, that's all too bad because the right answer is to work together to deal with China. Because we cannot, and she was very clear about this, we cannot deal with China uh, by ourselves, neither side. You know, if we're going to confront the competitive challenge they pose, we have to, we have to team up. That's a happy note to end on, isn't it? Well, a, such is life. In all the, gloom, in but the world ne- of, next week we'll be back with good news, presumably. Of, that's the world of trade for you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.